If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. We had a phenomenal week at Vacation Bible School. Very thankful for the privilege we had this past week of getting to invest in little boys and little girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today in Proverbs chapter 12, we're going to be in our last message in the book of Proverbs this summer. We've spent about nine weeks now talking about wisdom as it relates to a variety of topics. We've talked about wisdom as it relates to substance abuse. We've talked about wisdom as it relates to finances. We've talked about relationships and marriage and parenting. But today we're going to talk about wisdom as it relates to the use of our words. Now, it was long believed that men and women spoke a different amount of words a day. And there's some rationale for that. Typically, we conceive of ladies talking a little bit more than men. But actually, did you know that studies have shown that actually we speak about the same amount of words a day? Does anyone know how many words on average an adult speaks a day? Anybody want to guess a number? 20,000 is a little high, a little lower. 300. Go that way. 15,000. On average, you speak 15,000 words a day, which means, if my calculations are correct, you speak about 100,000 words a week, 5 million words a year, and if you live the average lifespan of about 78 years for an American today, you will speak 425 million words in your lifetime. That's a lot of words. Now, as I look out here, some of you have more words left than others. Very thankful that we have varying degrees of words left, but we speak a lot of words. And the great news is God's word has a lot to say about what it looks like to use those words wisely. One of my observations, and it's not unique to me, but that this last political campaign season really, really shaped, I think, the way a lot of us look at words. For many of us, we observed words being used like weapons, very vulgar, coarse language that came through our most recent political campaign. And it's very easy as we watch words sometimes to forget that words, and this is the idea I want you to take home today, words aren't neutral. According to God's word, and this is what I want to show you today, words are either going to be used to give life, to point people to the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way, or they're going to lead to distraction and deception. There is no middle ground for words. And so regardless of your ideological agreement or disagreement with candidates that have been elected or not been elected, what I think we all have to admit that this foreign attitude of carelessness with words Vulgarity with words, profanity with words is foreign from the Bible. What I want to show you this morning is what does it look like to use your words with wisdom? Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word from Proverbs chapter 12, 
verse 17. Proverbs 12, verse 17, we read these words. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Would you please pray with me? Father, right now we're asking, God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, we ask that in the name of Jesus, you would remove distraction and you would take your word by your spirit and speak to us. God, as we hear from you today, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If indeed it's true that words aren't neutral and God has a plan for them, today I want to let the Word of God give us three tests for our words. I want to take the 400 million words we will speak in our lifetime and put them under the microscope of God's Word as we evaluate whether we are truly using our words wisely. Test number one that I believe this passage gives us is an integrity test. An integrity test. Look at your Bibles at verse 17. The Bible says, Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. Skip down to verse 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. The Bible here in this passage will contrast an unwise use of words with a wise use of words. And here, case in point, he says that an unwise use of words is a, verse 17, false witness. This is a statement or group of statements that does not correspond to the truth. In other words, it's a statement that doesn't reflect reality and what actually happened or is happening. The core of what is at stake when you see the words false witness in your Bible is another way of understanding that is that it's a fraud. It's a fake. It's not real. In the most recent iteration of the Sherlock Holmes kind of cycle, Sherlock Holmes, the eminent detective, is called in to evaluate what many believe to be a fraudulent painting. Experts and scholars have studied this painting and and they know that something's off with it, but they can't figure out what it is. So Holmes is called in to study the painting and through a course of events, he learns that there's a constellation of stars in the painting that would not have been evident and apparent to its original author. He points out the stars in the painting and says there's no way that this author hundreds of years ago, this painter hundreds of years ago, could have seen these stars and proves it to be a fraud. When you and I communicate half-truths or lies, 
we communicate fraudulent statements. We put forward fakes that may appear or have some semblance of truth, but in reality are fakes. One of the things that we talk about in our house when it comes to lying is that a half-truth is a whole lie. Anybody else grew up saying that besides me? Our parents, we said that in our family. If we're selectively choosing what we leave out and what we put in, a half-truth is still a fraud. That's all wrapped up in this idea of false witness. Here's the problem. When we utter false statements, look at verse 19, one of the results, a lying tongue is but for a moment. What the writer of Proverbs is saying is that when we lie, we can always be assured that eventually it will come out. Eventually, our lies find us out. Even more damaging He tells us that when we utter lies, look back up at 17, second half, a false witness utters deceit. Even more serious, when we lie, when we communicate statements that aren't true, we deceive the people we lie to. So that when we tell a lie, it's as if when we communicate a lie and somebody believes it, it's as if we're wrapping a bandana or a blindfold around someone's eyes so they can't really see the truth. One of the reasons we spend time, especially in our time together in worship, talking about false teaching is not because we don't like these people that teach false teaching or we think we're right, everybody else is wrong. The reason we confront false teaching as a church is because we know that if someone believes and trusts false teaching, if they believe and trust a lie, it will deceive them. So one of the the areas we talk about frequently here is false teaching in the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel teaches that if you just believe enough, if you just pray enough, you'll have whatever you want. The reason we talk about this is because we know that if people trust that lie, if you believe that if you just pray hard enough, you'll get whatever you want, you're being deceived. You're being blinded to the truth. The reason lying is so dangerous is because what it inadvertently does is deceives those who hear it. On the other hand, He tells us that we should be people who, look at verse 17 again, speak the truth, giving honest evidence. On the other hand, we should be people who are speaking and giving statements that correspond to reality. That what we say automatically reflects what actually is happening or happened. In other words, what The writer of Proverbs is saying is that our words should be dependable and reliable. So that if I say something to you that I'm so trustworthy, that my words correspond in every way to the truth, that you rely on them and depend upon them to a fault. Think about what you rely upon on a daily basis. What are some of the things that you rely upon on a daily basis? Well, I don't know about you, 
but I have no idea how I would travel the streets of our communities without this. I mean, what did we do before we had these? I think we were supposed to pull over and ask for directions, right? We were supposed to check in, have a, have a physical map. We, we rely upon technology, right? We rely upon all types of different appliances around our homes to, to, to wash our dishes and to keep our food cold and, and, and to clean our clothes. We, we use those things without really any care or concern about them until there's a problem with them, right? But we use those as if they're dependable and reliable without even a second thought. This is the way our words are to function. Our words should have such a truthfulness and integrity to them that other people automatically just trust and believe them. While I'm thankful for the the, the, the technology and appliances I have in my life that I depend upon, what I'm more thankful for are the people that I depend upon. I don't know if you have people you trust and depend upon, but one of the strengths of our church family is we have people that are dependable and reliable. You need to know, church, that this past week at Vacation Bible School, we had 50 plus volunteers here every single day, even on Friday, which is the hard day at VBS. They were smiling and they were here. In fact, just for fun, I'd like to recognize our VBS volunteers. If you volunteered at Vacation Bible School this week, would you please stand to your feet so we can recognize you all over the room? If you don't be shy, stand up. Can we thank these people? When I looked every Monday, every morning, starting Monday all the way through Friday, and saw these people and their smiling faces, and the shirts that they washed every day, I think, to come and be a part. I was so thankful. There's a dependability to these people that are a part of our body, and I'm thankful for that. If you've ever had a friend that you rely upon and depend upon, it's invaluable, right? This is the way our words are to function. Our words are to be words of integrity and truthfulness. Notice the result. He says, verse 19, or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 19, truthful lips endure forever. There's an endurance to truth. It lasts. It stands the test of time because it's reality. But also notice back up in verse 17, whoever speaks truth gives honest evidence. Another way of understanding that phrase is that it gives righteousness. You see, when we speak truth, when we show ourselves to be people of integrity, we sow righteousness into the hearts of people. And here's the point that I want you to remember about truth. Truthful words are essential because we are communicating a message we want to be trusted. The reason integrity is crucial for those of us that claim Christ, is because we're declaring and singing and proclaiming about Jesus and the message that Jesus has entrusted to us, we're to share with a waiting and a watching world. What God's called us to be is to be people of integrity, not so we can just excel or advance in our business or in our career. He's called us to an integrity that sets the stage for people to believe the most important message they will ever hear in their lives. 
that Jesus Christ died for them, that he rose again, and that they can know God as his child and as his friend. That's what we're about. That's why we're people of integrity, because when we come to that moment, we want people to believe what we're sharing with them. This is why Paul, in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, says these words. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? In other words, the only way people come to Christ is if they hear a verbal communication of the gospel. People do not come to Christ because they just look at your life and see a moral, upstanding, virtuous person. That may win you a hearing to tell somebody about Jesus, but until we open our mouths and talk about our problem, sin, and talk about the solution that is Jesus, people don't hear and know the truth. This is why integrity is so essential, because words are the vehicle God uses to communicate his gospel. One of my concerns about this is the area of politics. I'm concerned that some of us may be getting so outraged about things politically that we're doing things in the present that are compromising our ability to have a hearing in the future for the gospel. We live in a day when the way that you respond to news is to be outraged and to fire some post off on Facebook. And my concern is that some of us are getting so outraged by things on Monday and Tuesday in our week that by the time we're asking somebody to come to church with us on Friday or Saturday, we've lost a hearing. You guys ever heard of this thing called fake news? Anybody ever heard of that? Now, I I will grant you that fake news is in part a strategy to dismiss people we disagree with, right? If you tell me something I don't like, I categorize it as fake news and kind of dismiss it. But I am concerned that some of us are getting really worked up on Monday about things that we find out on Wednesday may or may not have been true. We need to be careful about what we're outraged about. We don't want to give the impression that our hope rests in the political realm. We do not want to give the impression as Christians that our hope rests on the economy or education or foreign policy. As we've said so many times in here, we do not believe Jesus Christ is coming in on Air Force One. We believe that our Savior is establishing a kingdom that rises above every other nation. We need to be careful, church, that we're not doing things in the present online or in our communication with people at work that compromise our ability to communicate the gospel in the future. So let me ask you a question. Do your words reflect the truth? When you communicate, do your words correspond totally and completely to the truth? I did this in the first service, so I've got to do it in the second. 
those of you that are living at home, kids that are living at home, when your parents ask you a question, is your first strategy to figure out how to conceal, how to give a half-truth to get out of trouble? Or is your first response to be open and honest with your parents? You know what really keeps us from wanting to communicate the truth sometimes? We don't want the consequence. Can I get an amen? Amen. We don't want it. And so we try to conceal, we try to hide, we try to get half-truths. But the reality is what we're called to be as a people, if you know Jesus Christ, we're called to communicate the truth and trust God with the results. Church, let's be a people that are serious about integrity because we want to have a hearing to communicate a message that people will trust. Number two, second test is the caution test. Look in your Bibles at verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Rashness here is the unwise use of words, which is characterized by someone who speaks with little to no concern for the consequence. This is a person who talks without any concern for the impact that their words are having on people who listen. There's a a carelessness with their words, if you will. We see this all the time, right? If you walk into a grocery store, you'll see magazines that have sensationalized headlines, right? These tabloid magazines are not trying to give an accurate reporting of what's happening in the world. They're using their word to try to sensationalize something, to make it worth picking up and and you buying that magazine. There's a phenomenon now online called clickbait. Anybody ever heard of clickbait in here besides me? Clickbait means that the headline of a particular internet story is framed in such a way, not necessarily to communicate the truth, but get you to click on that story. All of us have met someone or have someone in our lives who has no filter. Do you know anybody that has no filter in your life? The first thing that pops into their head is coming out of their mouth. Maybe you're that person. I'm seeing some elbows move around in here (laughs) right now. There's a filter that we should be putting up between our minds and our mouths, but when we don't, there's a, a rashness to our words. Look at the result of this kind of careless word. Rash words, verse 18, are like sword thrusts. In other words, when we are not careful with our words, when we're careless with them, we weaponize our words like daggers that pierce people, that hurt people. One of the greatest lies that I think is being perpetuated through this popular saying is that sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Words hurt all the time. I believe fully that we could get every one of you up here and ask you, do you remember a time in your life when someone said something to you or wrote something to you 
or you heard about someone somebody, somebody said secondhand that hurt you, I bet every single person listening to this could give testimony to something someone said to them that's hurt them. Rashness with our words has an impact. On the other hand, look at the rest of verse 18. The one who is wise, or the tongue of the wise, brings healing. Now the context calls us to responsibly say that what he's saying is a contrasting statement here to say an unwise use of words is a lack of caution that hurts and harms. A wise use of words is one that reflects a carefulness to our words, a caution with which we speak. If there's some thought that goes into what we're going to say before we say it. My parents are sitting here a couple rows in. What I used to get in trouble for when I was younger is not just what I said, but it was how I said it. Can I get an amen out there? I had a smart mouth. There's a carefulness with which we're to shape not just what we're saying, but there's how we're saying it. There's a reflection before I just spout off something about how I'm actually going to communicate. Here's a theory. When someone's talking to you, let them finish before you think about what you're going to say. If you've already decided what you're going to say before someone's finished talking, there may not be a carefulness with your words. It be a lack of caution. One of the ways that we exhibit this caution is by being careful about the need of the moment. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the moment. Here's a suggestion for how to be cautious with your words. Be aware of the situation and the people that you're engaging with. Every situation doesn't call for the same response. It it would be like a doctor who just prescribes the same medicine to every patient that walks in. We wouldn't go to that doctor very long, would we? In the same way, when we just respond the same way to every person we're talking to, there's not a carefulness with which we're communicating. Here's the good news. When we communicate with a careful caution, look at the result. Verse 18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. That word healing could also mean nourishment or refreshment. That our words have the ability to bless and encourage and spur on and challenge other people. Here's what this is saying. Very simply, caution with words is essential because words have incredible potential for either good or evil. Our words should reflect a caution because either we can use them to harm people that we're engaging with or we can use them to be a source of healing. Think about the substance water. Water is kind of a big deal for us here in this community. I don't know if you knew that. 
when we were interviewing here as a family and we were beginning to talk to the church about five years ago, people kept talking about this place, the lake. And I was like, the lake? Where's the lake? I thought it was Osage Beach and Lake Ozark. People just call it the lake. And we call it the lake for a good reason, right? The lake, this body of water here, has a lot to do either directly or indirectly with our economy. Most of the jobs of members of our church are in some way connected to that body of water. That body of water also does an incredible feat with energy, right? With our dam that we have here, it produces energy that powers thousands of people's homes. But that same water, if that dam suddenly disappeared and they were unleashed from that place, would become incredibly destructive. I would submit to you that if that water were suddenly released down that river, it would kill people. It would destroy communities. Homes and lives would be uprooted. That water can either be used for incredible good, for our economy, for energy, or it can be used for incredible damage and destruction. What the writer of Proverbs is trying to remind us of, that's the same way it works with our words. Either our words can be used for incredible good, to bless and to encourage, or they can be used in a way that harms. Since I talked to the children, and my first point, let me my second point, talk to the parents. Parents, one of the things I think we have to be careful of is not parenting out of emotional frustration or anger. One of the things that we are very blessed with here at this church is families that have kids and lots of them. Very thankful for that. But one of the things that we have to be careful of in moments of frustration, in moments of exhaustion, is not popping off and and parenting and disciplining from a position of anger. Because here's what I know. When we discipline and invest in our kids from a position of anger and frustration, it will often lead us to throw caution to the wind. And we can say things to little lives and little hearts that shape and mold and form them in ways that we never intended. Parents, we need to be incredibly careful how we're communicating and speaking to our children from a position of caution. We need to be careful that there's a thoughtfulness even to how we're talking to the different children that we have. I have one child that if I say, I'm disappointed in you, man, he is broken up. He's sad, just like that. I have another child. If I say, I'm disappointed in you, he goes, eh, so what? no big deal. I'll go back to what I was doing now. I can't parent every child the same way, right? There's a thoughtfulness, there's a carefulness with my words. So let me ask you this question. Do your words reveal a caution? Is there a thoughtfulness to your words? Or some of us may be glorying the fact that we're people that just say whatever comes to our mind, and that's just who we are. Know that our words can cut and hurt. 
another practical suggestion from the book of James. Listen to what James says about caution with words. In James 1.19, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me say a word to those of you who are married as well, just for a moment. If you're married, one of the big mistakes that we can make is to try to solve difficult, complex issues when we're emotionally compromised. If you're emotionally out of 10, can I just make a suggestion to you, practically speaking, husbands and wives? That is not the time to try to work through some really big, hairy issue. But, but Spencer, wait a minute. The Bible says that we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. I'm not saying to go to bed angry. You don't have to have it all resolved to look at each other and say, we're not on the same page right now, but I love you. Let's pray and let's go to bed. I say that because I work with a lot of couples that say things in the heat of the moment they wish they could take back. Can I get an amen? We say things in anger and frustration that we wish we could take back. Sometimes the best thing to do is to say, I love you. I don't agree with you. I'm not happy with you right now, but I love you. Let's pray and let's go to bed. Church, we are called to be people who are cautious with our words. Do your words, the 400 million plus you're going to speak in this life, do they reflect that caution? Number three, and finally, there's a test of peace. The peace test. It's here in this passage. Look in your Bibles at verse 19. He says, deceit, excuse me, verse 20. Verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan or promote peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. The writer of Proverbs circles back around to lying, but he ratchets up, he intensifies his warning. Here he goes so far as to say in verse 22 that lying lips are an abomination to God. That is to say that deception and lying are despised. God despises lying. Part of the reason I think the writer of Proverbs makes that statement is because the Bible tells us that out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths speak. He even says in verse 20, did you notice? Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. Lies are so deadly because they produce deception in every direction. The reason lies, and this passage I believe says they're an abomination to God, is because lies don't just deceive the person I'm lying to. Lies actually reflect and reveal a deceived heart. You see, in order to tell a lie... You have to believe a lie. In order to deceive someone else with lies, you yourself have to be deceived. 
That's what this passage is saying. Here's the lie that people buy when they tell a lie. They believe that they have the ability to control the truth. The lie that we believe when we deceive others is that we somehow in our own ability have the the potential and the capacity to control everything. This is why we see destruction and turmoil ensue. This is why the passage in verse 21 says, the wicked are filled with trouble. Because when we lie, we deceive and destroy in every direction around us, starting with ourselves. Think about some of the political scandals we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. Richard Nixon thought he could control and keep up with his deception and lying and wiretapping. He thought he could control it and keep it together, but eventually it came roaring out. Bill Clinton in the 90s thought he could keep his improprieties closed and he could control the information and control the truth, but eventually it got away from him. He couldn't control it and it came roaring out. The reason we lie and the reason some of us this morning are living lies is because we've been deceived to think that we can control the truth. Here's the problem. Our lies eventually always, always, always come out. Some of you may think, well, I'm good enough. I've held it on this long. I've I've concealed this for 30 or 40 years. Nobody knows about this but me. Maybe some of us have a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas attitude with lies. Nobody knows. It's just this little thing I have. Guess what? God knows. And one day God will judge the living and the dead and everything in the darkness will be brought into the light. If you're living a lie, if you're lying as a part of just navigating your way through life, please understand, eventually it will come out. Eventually every lie is brought forth. I remember the story when I was a little boy about a little boy made out of wood who every time he told a lie, what happened to his nose? You guys remember who that was? Pinocchio, right? He's Pinocchio. He, he tells a lie. And so I think some of us have this association, well, my nose isn't getting longer. It's working okay for me. But what this passage tells us is eventually all of those come to light. On the other hand, that's an unwise use of words. A wise use of words, look at verse 20. But those who plan or promote peace have joy. On the other hand, we're not to be people who are deceiving, who are sowing turmoil and destruction in every direction. We're to be people who are aggressively trying to make peace. Now, peace at a, at a very basic level is the picture of two forces being opposed to one another. And as a result of some input or some conversation, they become a harmonious movement in the same direction. We're to be people who are sowing, who are encouraging peace. Our, our call, our heart, is to see reconciliation and peace come into this world. And here's why. 
Peaceful words are essential because sin ensures conflict and misunderstanding. We as followers of Jesus are to speak words that bring people together, that bring harmony and movement in the same direction because we know that we live in a sinful, fallen world that will always have misunderstanding, that will always have some form of conflict. Peacemakers are going to be needed always as a role in this world. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be the sons and daughters of of God. We're called to make peace in two directions, just to practically break this down. We're called to make peace horizontally first in our relationships with others. There will be conflicts. There will be misunderstandings. And you and I are called to use our words to smooth out those conflicts. Can I tell you what happens when sin gets involved in relationships? We begin to receive things as slights that were never meant to be that way. We begin to perceive people's behavior through the worst possible lens, and and we assume the worst of them, and and conflict emerges. But sometimes when sin's involved, there are just legitimate differences and disagreements that we can't resolve. We are called to be people that are making peace in these kind of situations. Let me tell you why this is so important for our church family. As a church, we will have legitimate disagreements as a church family. It is unavoidable for for us to have differences of opinions. And what God calls you and I to in this passage is to be people that are not just sitting and listening to people complaining and empathizing with them. We're not just to be people who hear somebody's grievance and and tell them how horrible that is and, and kind of disagree with them and move on. We're called to be people that when these things come up to us, that we aggressively are pressing in to try to bring peace and harmony. Part of what we're called to do and to be are people of peace, especially in the body of Christ. But more importantly, we're also, number two, to have a peaceful focus to our words in our vertical relationship. Horizontally, it's our relationships with others. We're also called to peaceful words vertically. You see, we are called to tell people about how they can have peace with God. We're called to communicate a message that informs people that though they're at war with God, they can know Him as their friend. Peace is a very appropriate word to use when it comes to our relationship with God because the reality is every single person enters this life at war with Him. Imagine for a moment a king, a king that has a kingdom. And in this kingdom, some of this king's subjects begin to rebel. They begin to be dissatisfied with the king. And so they begin to gather a force. They begin to gather an army and they begin to march on the king's castle. If that king is a good and a just and a right king, what's he going to do in his response to some of his subjects who are trying to rebel? He's going to meet them head on. He's going to put down that rebellion and establish peace and harmony in his kingdom. Now what you and I need to remember is that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. And what we've done in our sin is we've rebelled. We've tried to start an insurrectionist rebellion against God who is king. When we sin, 
when we lie, when we steal, when we lust, when we have hatred in our hearts, what we're doing is we're gathering together an insurrectionist rebellion and we're marching on Christ's kingdom. And what all of us deserve because of our rebellion is God's wrath and just punishment. Every one of us do. Every one of us deserve God to come out of his castle and destroy us once and for all. But God doesn't do that. God gives the punishment that should have come to rebels like you and me. He gives it to Jesus. And when Jesus Christ hangs on that cross, what he's doing is taking the punishment for our rebellion so that we can have peace. This is the good news that we're called to promote and to plan. This is why I believe God in verse 22 says, those who act faithfully are his delight. God delights in seeing his kingdom expand as people speak the words of peace to a waiting and a watching world. Maybe some of you are here today and you've never trusted this message of peace. You're still at war with God. Only if you turn from your sin and trust Christ can you be forgiven. Said another way, the only way to achieve victory is through surrender. We lay down our arms before the king. We bow our knees and we say, Jesus, you're king of kings and Lord of lords. This past week at Vacation Bible School, um, we shared the gospel as we always do on Wednesdays with the kids. And on Wednesdays we shared and then we had them take cards to their classrooms and work with their teachers about kind of where they were spiritually. And if a kid put down that they wanted to know more or they were interested in accepting Christ, we had them check that box. And then one by one we would have conversations with kids throughout VBS. It's one of my favorite parts because I, I just get to talk and share and hear their questions Um, You just would not believe some of the questions we get asked in these conversations. It's absolutely great. But one of the kids this year that checked he was interested in knowing more about Christ was my son. Uh, Seth Plumley, my seven-year-old, checked that box. And so I've got a little special access to Seth. And so rather than pulling him out of his class, I took him to dinner on Wednesday night. And um, we went to dinner, and it was just him picking his favorite place and just to have a conversation about Jesus. We've talked about Christ in our home as long as uh, he's been alive, uh, you know, talking to him about Jesus, but I wanted to kind of just have a special time with him. And so we got out a napkin, and I began to draw the gospel for him. And on this napkin, I drew a kingdom of darkness, kind of wasn't a very good drawing, but he understood what it was. And, And then there was a kingdom of light, And I talked about the differences between these two kingdoms. And oh man, he really got into it. He's like, Daddy, let's draw some some flames down here. And let's draw this over here. And it was great. It was kind of a group project we did together. And I said, buddy, the, the, the gap between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light is the cross of Christ. Jesus died so you can move from this kingdom to that kingdom. And one of the reasons I draw that, and parents, I'd encourage you to use that, is because I held it up and I said, Seth, tell me where you're at right now. Point to me which kingdom you're in. Because I wanted to see if he understood. He said, Daddy, I'm in this kingdom of darkness over here. He said, but I want to get to the kingdom of light. 
Parents, remember, before we talk about the solution, we have to convince our children that they have a problem. If they don't understand where they are, Jesus doesn't make sense. So he said, I get it, Daddy. I, I want to be in the kingdom of light. I'm ready to follow Jesus and trust him. He said, but Daddy, I have a question. He said, after I come to the kingdom of light, is it possible for me to go back to the kingdom of darkness? Once I travel across this bridge, is it possible for me to like mess up and, and go back to the kingdom of darkness and be imperiled of God's wrath in an everlasting hell? And I said, buddy, no, because when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just that you walk across that bridge to that kingdom. It's that God transports you to that new kingdom and he never lets you go. That's what we sang a few moments ago, that he will hold us fast. And after I explained, you know, give this long explanation, drew it on there, he goes, okay, and went back to eating his french fries. <laughs> and I reflected on that later, and what I realized is that Seth Plumley trusts me. He asked me a question, and I gave him an answer. It, it, it brought back to me something my dad used to say to me every day. He, he would say frequently, Spencer, I'll never lie to you. And I remember thinking as a kid, okay, yeah, big deal. My dad's supposed to do that. That's kind of what he's supposed to do. But as I got older, I realized how formative and how shaping that was for me that I trusted what my parents told me. So that now that I'm passing on to my son a trust that says, Seth, if you ask me a question and I tell you, I'm going to tell you the truth. And that night, as we gathered together as a family, Seth prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And he did that in part, not because of how great I am, not because I have all the answers. It's because he trusted that what I was telling him was the truth. I tell you that to say this, our words aren't neutral. They matter. They matter deeply in how we're creating an environment in our homes and in our workplaces that people trust what we say so that when it comes time, when we have opportunity to tell people about Jesus, there's an establishment of integrity and trust and a foundation that's there across which the gospel can travel. Maybe some of you didn't grow up in an environment like that. I know some of you didn't, where your parents, you trusted them and you felt safe and secure. Here's the good news. By God's grace, you can be a good steward of the 400 plus million words God's entrusted to you. By God's grace, you can break the cycle of creating an environment in your home where trust is not there. The way that you and I steward our words well is by being people of integrity, caution, and that we realize that we're called to be peacemakers. Would you please pray with me, church? Father, I thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace that is new every morning. God, I thank you that we serve and worship a God who's called us out of darkness and into the light of your grace and your mercy. Father, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, I know that there may be some people here today